I'm Shahid Abari. We're delighted to have you. Our book is The Philosopher Queens, edited by Rebecca Buxton and Lisa Whiting. From Hypatia and Hannah Arendt to Ban Zhao and Angela Davis, this new collection of essays places 20 prominent women thinkers on the centre stage of philosophy. The speakers today have all been involved in this collection in different ways, and they'll talk about women philosophers that they want to champion today. But it's also an opportunity for all of us to talk more broadly about the state of the discipline, its history, its legacies and its future, too. Now, our speakers are Anita L. Allen. She's the Henry R. Silverman Professor of Law and Philosophy at at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Her research interests are in privacy law and legal theory, contemporary ethics, bioethics, mental illness, race relations and gender and the law. Her books include Why Privacy Isn't Everything, Feminist Reflections on Personal Accountability, published in 2003, and The New Ethics, A Tour of the 21st Century, published in 2004. For the Philosopher Queens, she contributed a chapter on the political philosopher Angela Davis, and she also has the unique experience of also being herself one of the philosophers documented in this wonderful collection. Rebecca Buxton is stipendiary lecturer in politics at St Anne's College at the University of Oxford, and she's the co-editor alongside Lisa Whiting of The Philosopher Queens. And she's just about to submit her PhD on membership and exile, the political rights of refugees. This book came about, as she and Lisa describe it, from the unhappy experience of a disheartening trip to the local bookshop. And we'll find out more about the process of compiling the book in a moment. And as well as editing the book, Rebecca also contributed the chapter on Hannah Arendt. And Desiree Lim is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Penn State University. She started with a PhD in philosophy at King's College London and she was a postdoc fellow at the McCoy Centre for Ethics in Society at Stanford University. She's also been a Norman Malcolm Fellow at Cornell and her primary interests lie in contemporary political philosophy, particularly the concept of social or relational equality. She's working on a book project, Immigration and Social Inequality, sorry, Social Equality, which provides a social critique of immigration practices and she also has strong interests in bioethics, feminist philosophy and the critical philosophy of race. How wonderful you all sound. I'm so excited to talk to you. Hello Anita, Rebecca and Desiree. Hello, lovely to be here. Lovely to be here. Great. I've asked each of you to to select a reading from the book. And I should remind our audience that you don't need to have read the book to enjoy this discussion, but you'll certainly want to return to the book or or start the book once you've listened to this discussion. And we'll we'll structure our discussion around the readings that the three of you have selected. But I'm also interested in generating a conversation between all four of us about the state of the discipline of philosophy and the work of women philosophers. And Rebecca, I wondered if we could start with you, first of all, by by setting up the context of this book. And I, I mentioned that disheartening trip to the bookshop with Lisa. Tell me what happened. Yeah, so Lisa and I have known each other for a very long time. We studied our A-level philosophy together. Um, We knew each other from high school, so we go way back. And we were living together in London. We'd both taken philosophy degrees undergraduate. And by then, we'd sort of broken up with philosophy. Lisa was working in a policy job, and I was working um, in the House of Commons. And she had a day off. And where she was working was the Human Fertility and Embryology Authority, which was set up uh, after a commission by Mary Warnock, who is a a woman philosopher who's in the book, and was really prolific, specifically in public philosophy and engaging with select committees and being a real force for philosophy and, and how it can affect people's everyday lives. So Lisa decided to go to a large bookshop chain that will remain unnamed (laughs) to try and find a book about women philosophers because she was so sure that one would be there. Not only were there no books about women philosophers at all, there were many books called things like the best 100 philosophers or the greatest philosophers and almost none of them included any women at all. One included one woman, Hannah Arendt, who often takes a sort of seat alongside maybe Mary Wollstonecraft, who is often also (laughs) included in these sort of books as the one woman that they have to include. There was a particular book called The Greatest Philosophers that Lisa picked up and took a picture of, where every chapter was about a white European man And every one of those chapters was written by a male philosopher. I hate this book already. (laughs) And the book was edited by two men. So (laughs) so it was sort of the direct antithesis of our book. And she came home and said, this is so annoying. We should write a book sort of in a slightly joking way. And then I got this sort of idea that we actually should try and write this book together. And yeah, it's all snowballed from there, really. (laughs) 
it's wonderful that you that you took the initiative and were resourceful enough to put this together. It's funny how we've I think we have become more alert to this. I noticed recently that there's a, a series called The Little History of, and they are all little histories by men. And I think there might have been a time where we might have thought that it's just the way sometimes things happen in publishing, but now it seems utterly unacceptable. So I know that we're seeing a sea change and I, I'm, I'm really delighted to have you to talk about your book, which seems to be a really important part of that. I want to come to you, Anita and, and Desiree, because I, I, one of the things that I think we're going to talk about in a bit more detail is about our institutional experience, our professional experience. And I wonder, reflecting on your own experiences as students of philosophy and now researchers, eminent researchers in the philosophy departments of different kinds and departments of different kinds in which you do philosophy, would you say that your status as a woman has shaped or inflected your institutional experiences in any way at all? I wonder what you think, Anita. I think my being a woman has actually affected every single aspect of my career as a philosopher, as a lawyer, as a citizen. But in terms of philosophy, I mean, uh, Rebecca mentioned that she's about to finish her dissertation. I finished my dissertation 40 years ago in uh, 1980. I think that's 40 years ago. Yeah, exactly so. So I am of a generation where there were extremely few women in philosophy, and I had to justify my existence every single day. And I'll just briefly tell you this anecdote. The very first time I taught a philosophy class as a teaching assistant at the University of Michigan, where I was getting my PhD, all the graduate students taught classes, but I walked into my classroom and a white male student stood up and said to me, and I'll never forget these exact words, what gives you the right to teach them? Oh, oh my goodness. Did you have an ability to respond in those circumstances? It seems, seems so paralyzing, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it could have been completely paralyzing, but my response was very straightforward. I'm teaching this class because I'm a graduate student in philosophy and graduate student in philosophy, RTH in, in this universe. Yeah. That's all I said. But having a, a sulking, unhappy presence in my classroom, I always now when I'm teaching, I visualize that man in my class. And so I'm teaching the class in a way which answers his question. So yeah. I try as effective as I can, as coherent and brilliant and helpful as I can. Yeah. And I think that's how I handle it. It's not a very happy thing to, to not be yeah. able to get that, that yeah. experience. The prerequisite that somehow we have to prove our worthiness to be in that room where other people are not required to provide that evidence seems to me so utterly unfair. What about you, Desiree? Well, I think it shaped my experience somewhat negatively as an undergrad, but more positively as a grad student and beyond. So when I was an undergrad at the University of Edinburgh, I would often be the only woman and most certainly the only woman of colour in all of my classes, both philosophy and English lit. And back then, that did not strike me as particularly shocking. It was just what was normal. And I was just so conditioned to understand that this was just the way that things were. And so I think that the book itself has made me really go back and reevaluate these experiences and how frustrating they could be for me at times in ways that I couldn't really articulate back then. But I will say that in grad school, I was very fortunate to have a mentor, um, my advisor, um, Professor Sarah Fine, who's obviously a woman and was incredibly supportive of me because of her attentiveness to these experiences that I might have had. And I think that her incredible mentorship and guidance and just being very involved in helping me along with my career was just a wonderful experience for me. And I will also say that intersectionally speaking, I'm an international student, I, or rather I was, but I came from a country that spoke English. And I think my experience as a native speaker would be very, very different compared to someone whose first language was not English. And so I was able to blend in or be accepted in a way that many people were not. And I just want to say one last thing. I generally have had very good experiences professionally. I don't think I've really felt much discrimination, either gender or racial. Maybe I'm just not picking up on it. That's completely possible. But I will also never forget an experience I had fairly recently. I gave a paper on discrimination that talks very much about equal respect. I drew heavily on Kant. And at the end of the conference, I'm having lunch and this guy comes up to me, a professor who will not be named, and he says to me, do you know anything about Kant? Um, I expect you've only learned Eastern philosophy and therefore aren't familiar with Western philosophy. And I thought, I just gave the keynote lecture on Kant, yeah. so yeah. that was very awkward. Uh, yeah, how appalling. But also, I think I can see that the, the world in which that question might be asked. I wonder if there has been a generational shift. I, I think I'm perhaps a bit older than you, Desiree, and a little bit younger than Anita. And I have a, a sense of both Anita's experience and your experience that the landscape was one thing at one point. 
I felt like philosophy seminars were not spaces in which women were expected to take the lead necessarily or were somehow remarkable if they did try to do so. But now that there are a great many women mentors who we can admire and aspire to as well. Rebecca, what about you? What's your institutional experience? Has it been shaped by your sex? I think I think to some extent, but probably to a lesser extent than the others. So I'm a white middle class woman who comes from the south of England who went to university in London. So sort of the institutional change for me wasn't as big. And in my undergraduate course, most of the philosophy students were women, which for me was really amazing. So surrounded by all of these women, all very opinionated, all very good at philosophy. There were still like a few experiences that I had during my undergrad, just of kind of philosophy bros. It, for me in particular, it was around the kinds of philosophy that women are meant yes. to be doing. So I, I was very good at logic. And I really remember a guy in my class not understanding a particular problem. And my professor, who was a woman, suggesting that he asked me how to do it. And he refused and walked out the room. <laughs> I don't know whether it was just pride or yeah. um, something else. And, and uh, my favourite subject until very late was philosophy of mind, which I really loved. And I was thinking about doing my PhD on that instead of political theory, which I eventually ended up doing. But I got a sense in the seminars that it just wasn't expected of me to have an opinion or to be good. I mean, I remember in my third year, a guy explaining to me a very basic concept in epistemology, which I, of course, knew I was in my <laughs> third year class. And my tutor, who again was a woman, which I think is important, explained to him, Rebecca got the highest mark in the year for epistemology. She knows. She knows. Yeah, she knows. So I think I'm lucky that I have mentors and people, graduate lecturers, people like that, who are sticking up for me. And I'm also a Sarah Fine descendant. So I, <laughs> she was my undergraduate supervisor and having her was, was amazing. Uh, we should talk more about the women who've mattered to us, of course. I think that's always such a gratifying and important thing to do. And I'm also keen to ask you more about the parts of philosophy where perhaps we are, women are expected to work and perhaps which seem more inaccessible to us and why that is. But Re Rebecca, let me get you to take us back to the beginning of this book, because this is an enormously ambitious book in many ways, compiling a compendium of philosophy queens. How did you go about it? What was your selection criteria? It was very informal to begin with, mainly because at the time, Lisa and I were just two ex-philosophy students. We'd never written a book. I'd never written anything, published anything at that point. And I didn't think it was very likely that anyone would care about the project. I started with us just emailing women professors that we had had and asking, do you think this is a good idea? Do you know anybody who would want to write for it? Do you want to write any, a chapter? Um, and looking around at publishers. And very quickly, most people were saying yes and replying to the email very fast, which was great. So that was how we sort of got our first 10 women in the book. And then at that point, we took a step back and saw that the kinds of women who were being chosen reflected the kind of institution that philosophy is in the academy, which is you know, very white European women, the kinds of women that you would maybe get appearing in the 100 best philosophers book, the ones that you'd heard of already. And we wanted to make sure that the book wasn't like that. We tried very hard in the next 10 to sort of reflect as much of the geographical disciplinary and throughout time, the diversity of women philosophers that there really are. I'm still not 100% sure that we got it exactly right. There are quite a few women who I really would have loved to include in the book and we either couldn't find somebody to write on them or we didn't have space or it didn't work out with a particular person. If I could do it again, there would be probably about 10 more chapters in the book trying to cover even more women. Plus volume two, we can look forward to that. <laughs> Just very quickly, I want to know whether the term philosophy queens comes from. It's a technical philosophical term, isn't it? It comes from, or at least we've stolen it from Plato's Republic, um, where he discusses philosopher rulers or philosopher kings. There's some discussion about how it should be translated. And these sort of philosopher rulers, enlightened people who decide how the city is organised. At the beginning of the book, we sort of hint that, you know, you could interpret Plato as a kind of feminist philosopher, because he, for the first time, said that women could actually be philosophers, although he then went on to say they probably wouldn't be very many of them and they wouldn't be very good at it. He was one of the first to say it, and then it took a, a long time for anybody else to start saying it. So yeah, we stole the Philosopher King's title from him and made it Philosopher Queen's. 
you're, you're going to read from the introduction now just to, to set up our discussion together. I've sort of picked a section that's slightly less ranty than the rest of it because <laughs> I realised rereading it that a lot of it was quite angry so I thought I'd share a bit of hope instead. When the two of us, Lisa and myself, were studying philosophy at university, we knew that women were underrepresented in our discipline. Both of us had had only a handful of women lecturers and our lessons were dominated by men from 100 years ago, as well as the men standing before us. A typical philosophy syllabus will likely feature very few or no women, with the focus instead being on the so-called philosophical canon, that is, Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Hobbes, Locke, Hume, Rousseau, Kant, Mill, Nietzsche, Sartre and Rawls, to name only a few. Women are often only mentioned briefly, perhaps in reference to a male counterpart with whom they worked or had a romantic relationship, or if you're lucky, as part of a single women in philosophy or gender and philosophy module. When attempts are made to diversify the curriculum to include other important philosophical voices, this is often accompanied by a media outcry over snowflake students and lecturers. But despite these frustrations, there is much cause for hope. Outstanding work is being done in academic philosophy to reclaim the history of women philosophers and ensure that their voices and perspectives are preserved for the next generation of thinkers. The new narratives in the History of Philosophy group and Project Vox both showcase women philosophers from the early modern period. The Society for Women in Philosophy, or SWIP, runs events and mentoring programmes aimed at promoting women in philosophy, past, present and future. The Centre for the History of Women Philosophers at Scientists and Paderborn University in Germany runs an annual summer school teaching students about the great contributions that women have made throughout history. The In Parentheses project at Durham University explores the archives and work of the Oxford Four, Mary Midgley, Iris Murdoch, Elizabeth Anscombe and Philippa Foote. And this year has seen the publication of Becoming Beauvoir by one of our own authors, Kate Kirkpatrick. And all of this work is helping to break down barriers for women in philosophy today by showing that women in this field are far from new. We have, in fact, been philosophers all along. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you chose something optimistic there. I mean, I think we have reason to be ranty, if that's the right yeah, word. But I, I, I think it's also really nice to, to be hopeful. I wonder, Anita and Desiree, if that's where you are at the moment too, whether you're seeing these kinds of initiatives in your own subfields and disciplines and schools and whether you have reason to be optimistic about the future. I have a couple of bases for being optimistic. Uh, one of them is that I myself was elected the first African-American woman president of an APA, American Philosophical Association division, a couple of years ago, and it was a, a wonderful experience. And that I was elected in a tradition that starts with John Dewey for the wow. president, a huge honor. And it really did show that things have improved. I think before me, there were one or two Black men who had had this role. But as a woman, I was the first uh, woman, a Black woman to have the role. Another sign of hope and optimism is that St. Hilda's Oxford has now initiated a lecture, uh, the Joyce Mitchell Cook Memorial Lecture, in honor of the first Black woman philosopher to obtain a PhD. And I had the pleasure last week of giving the inaugural uh, lecture for this series. And the great interest that's being shown in Black women philosophers is just truly astounding. At Penn State, where Desiree is on the faculty, Dr. Catherine uh, Sophia Bell has now for about 15 years led a collegium of Black women philosophers, another ray of hope because it provides mentorship and collegiality for women of color. So there's plenty of reasons to feel extremely optimistic about the role of women philosophers. We have a long way to go, but we've come a long way, a mighty long way since Plato. I'm so glad that, Anita, you mentioned Catherine, because I was just going to brag about my connection to her. <laughs> Penn State, it's a fantastic place to be doing philosophy. I would say that we are probably the number one department of the U.S. that really prioritizes diversity as an effort. We regularly run workshops to encourage students students from underrepresented groups to join philosophy and mentor them through the whole process. We're also very careful to pay attention to include diverse readings for our students during our classes. And we also have a very, very diverse faculty, I think. And so that just being in Penn State and inhabiting that space gives me a lot of hope um, that there are people who care about these things and are willing to undertake these efforts with me. Um, but I will also say that even though the job market is absolutely dismal at the moment because of COVID and many other depressing factors that we perhaps will not speak of right now, there has been lots of interest in people working on feminist philosophy and the critical philosophy of race, if not both at the same time. And I think the willingness to hire people who work in these areas is also a very 
good and excellent reason for optimism. I know you've contributed a chapter on, on the American political scientist and philosopher Iris Marion Young, and you're going to talk to me about Iris Marion Young. I'm just trying to find the section in the book, because before we start that discussion, I wanted to mention, Rebecca, how beautifully illustrated this book is. What was the name of your illustrator? Is it Emmy? Emmy Smith. Yeah. Emmy Smith. Not that you shouldn't buy this book anyway, but it does happen to have these amazing illustrations. And this was the chapter that you contributed, Desiree. Tell me why you chose Iris Marion Young. Well, discovering her was just life-changing for me. And until I read her work as an undergrad, I'd never encountered another political philosopher who spoke just so directly to my own interests in social oppression and marginalization and was able to center these phenomena in her writing on equality, democracy and responsibility. And, and I really feel that Iris gave me the building blocks for my thinking on these issues. And I also want to say that I have a personal connection to her insofar as I now work at Penn State and she got her PhD from Penn State. So I feel just very pleased to be walking down the same hallways as she did um, back in the day. But for people who don't know her work, how would you describe her work and her concerns? Yeah, so I intended to read from her work instead of my own chapter. And, and I thought that maybe just this very short, slightly abridged excerpt would do a good job of doing that, if that's okay. That's lovely. Let's hear from her. Okay, so this is from her first book, Justice in the Politics of Difference, that was published in 1990. And even though it's a very old book at this point, I still go back to it at least once a week. I would say, and the words still resonate super powerfully today when speaking to the methods and scope of political philosophy. So here we go. Here's Iris. What are the implications for political philosophy on the claims of social movements associated with left politics? Movements like feminism, Black liberation, American Indian movements, and gay and lesbian liberation. How can traditional socialist appeals to equality and democracy be deepened and broadened as a result of these developments in late 20th century politics and theory? So what, what is it that these groups have to contribute to political philosophy? So she continues, justice is the primary subject of political philosophy. These questions are thus inseparable from questions about justice. What conceptions of social justice do these new social movements implicitly appeal to, and how do they confront or modify traditional conceptions of justice? So she says, I argue that instead of focusing on distribution, that is how material goods and resources are distributed across society, we should begin with the concepts of domination and oppression. And such a shift brings out issues of decision-making, division of labor, and culture that bear on social justice but are often ignored in philosophical discussions. It also exhibits the importance of social group differences in structuring social relations and oppression. I argue that where social group differences exist and some groups are privileged while others are oppressed, social justice requires explicitly acknowledging and attending to these group differences in order to undermine oppression. And finally, this is the last quote. In order to be a useful measure of actual justice and injustice, political philosophy must contain some substantive premises about social life, which are usually derived from the actual social context in which the theorizing takes place. So I think that's really what she's all about. I know her a little bit from, I think, perhaps her most famous essay, Throwing Like a Girl, and the kind of embodied phenomenology that she, she advances. And I wonder if her legacy has continued. She died in 2006, I think. I will say it's just so painful to think about the loss that the disciplines endured from her untimely passing. She died far, far too young and far too suddenly. But I think that her influence on present-day thinking is more present than ever. And I see this reflected in at least three ways. And so the first way might be the lasting appeal of what we call social and relational equality. I think you talked about that in my introduction. And so rather than being merely interested in just equal distributions of goods and resources, many present-day philosophers like Elizabeth Anderson, Emily McTernan, Amy Reed Sandoval, and myself have focused on the idea of equal relationships between persons. So we want to know how exactly we create a society of social equals rather than superiors and inferiors. So what does it mean to stand in the hierarchical relationship to another person or group? In what ways are such hierarchies reproduced? And I think that Young's work has really carved out that space for us that's more fertile and generative than ever. Yeah, I noticed in your, in your essay about her for, for, for the Philosopher Queens that you spend quite a lot of time talk, talking about her life, the conditions in which she grew up, the circumstances of her upbringing, some of which were difficult, I think, to say the least. And her life is important in your essay, but I, I think you're suggesting that 
also in her thought. Would, would that be right? That's exactly right. And so I think there's no question that Young herself experienced and witnessed some very serious injustice that was deeply classed and gendered at its very roots. And so my own personal interpretation is that these experiences were foundational to the theory and praxis. So she fought, I think, for a style of philosophy that was willing to venture into the ugly and messy facts of the world from a perspective that was not abstract and detached, but just deeply embedded in these realities. That was where she was coming from. And so she also had a profound respect, I think, for the viewpoints of persons who, like her, had found themselves trapped in these unjust systems and argued passionately for the inclusion of these perspectives. I think she was also instinctively drawn to the very physical and embodied nature of political activism and protest. Um, and I see that as coming from a very deep solidarity with others who, like her, suffered injustice that many philosophers from comparatively privileged backgrounds had never even come close to. Yeah, I, I, I want to draw Anita and Rebecca in here. I wonder if you have any thoughts on Desiree's remarks. I, I'm particularly thinking about this idea that the, the embedded realities of philosophy that you're talking about, Desiree, the way that our lives might bear on philosophy, whether that is something that is something that women are particularly alert to, to, to generalise, or whether that's something that philosophy is somehow disqualified from real philosophy and that one of our jobs is to reintroduce the embedded realities of social injustice that women in particular, women of colour in particular, suffer. I wonder if you have any remarks, Anita and Rebecca, in general to, to Desiree's discussion there. I wanted to just comment that I had the pleasure of spending a lot of time with Iris Young about two years before she passed away. She was a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study at Princeton the same year that I was a fellow in the Program for Law and Public Affairs. And we uh, met with two other women scholars who were fellows at the time. We met uh, weekly, and it was such an interesting thing to have uh, conversations with women of depth like Iris Young. And by the way, the picture of her in the book looks exactly like her. <laughs> I, I thought that actually what was just said about Iris Young was a perfect segue into what I was going to say about Angela Davis uh, in terms of being a philosopher whose life was embodied in her philosophy and who strove throughout her career and is still striving to make sure that there's a reality, a concrete material reality that her work addresses. It's not just philosophy in the air, it's philosophy on the ground in response to conditions of imprisonment, subordination, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, I, I'm desperate to come and talk to you about Angela Davis, but I'm going to let Rebecca come in if she'd like to, just on, on Young or any of Desiree's remarks. It's amazing to hear more about her life, really. So I love this chapter in the book, and I hadn't read very much Iris Young before editing the volume. But this year, I was lucky enough to be in a sort of 10-person reading group for just her work, where we interrogated it for three hours every week with some fellow DPhils at Oxford. And it was such a great experience. And, and it's the only woman philosopher that I've ever done a reading group where we just read her work. And I'm going to do it again for as, as many others as I possibly can. But even in the first week reading her um another famous essay in Injustice and the Politics of Difference, The Five Faces of Oppression, which um, so many of my students love today, just to, again, talk about her, her legacy. And it's one of those essays that you read and you wonder sort of why I bother doing philosophy at all, because she's absolutely um, done it in, in that paper. And, and she's also a great gateway philosopher as well so if, if anybody hasn't read any women philosophers or any philosophy at all she's a good first person to go to because she is very grounded and gives you not too much lofty useless philosophy. <laughs> Anita let me turn to you now and, and you chose the political philosopher as you've mentioned an, an activist Angela Davis um, and it, it strikes me that there's a resurgence of academic interest in her again but perhaps that happens periodically and, and you can tell me about that but I've been angling to run an event on Angela Davis for a little while why did you select her as a philosophy queen? Well, as I recall, uh, the editors, uh, Rebecca and Lisa, said to me that I could choose a woman philosopher about whom to write. And I very quickly narrowed it down to three African-American women. Uh, one was Adrian Piper, who's now a Berlin-based philosopher, who was also a friend of mine in the 1990s. And I greatly admire her work. She's a Kant scholar, but in, more importantly, she's an internationally renowned conceptual artist. So I would thought she'd be a great person to write about. And Adrian, by the way, was the first black woman in America to be tenured in a philosophy department. That happened around, I think, 1980 or 89. And then the, the other choice, choice might have been Joyce Mitchell Cook, whom I mentioned earlier, was the first black woman to get her PhD in philosophy. She got her PhD from Yale University in 1965, which is truly extraordinary. 
She edited the Review of Metaphysics as a student. They asked her to edit this important journal. She was an amazing person. Uh, but I chose Angela Davis in the end because throughout my childhood, I started reading philosophy as a kid, believe it or not, but I loved philosophy very young. And uh, the first philosopher I ever heard of who was a black woman was Angela Davis. She was the first black woman philosopher I ever heard of. She couldn't have been more different than me, but I really was drawn to the idea that here is somebody who's able to read and study philosophy, go to Germany, study with great philosophers, come back, and then join the civil rights movement in a very different way than I would have. But she, she was a very important figure, public figure. So that's why I chose Angela Davis. For those people who don't know, and why don't they know? Because she's such a heroine. How, how would you characterize her work and her concerns? Well, um, you know, drawing on my chapter, Angela Davis is probably the most iconic symbol of the American Black Power Movement. If you've ever seen a person wearing an Afro, you can imagine that that's because I rise the Afro hair, hairdo, her hair, hairdo became a symbol of Black Power and the fight against social oppression. Uh, in any event, she was a communist. She was a socialist. Her parents were leftists. She went to college. She went to Brandeis University, which is a, a historically Jewish university in the northeast of the United States. She then went to uh, study at Humboldt University in Germany and at some other German universities as well, I believe. But in any event, she was just this amazing person who was really well-grounded, not in Oxford Cambridge style philosophy, but rather in continental philosophy, especially the critical theory philosophies and the Frankfurt School of Philosophy. So I think that she can be understood as being a thoroughly professionally trained academic who, instead of living in the ivory tower where she could have lived, busted out, joined mm -hmm. uh, a black wing of the Communist Party, joined the black power movement and fought aggressively and firmly for civil rights and for racial justice. She also has the distinction of having had a most wanted poster by the FBI. She was accused falsely of assassinating several people, including a judge in a Marin County courthouse. She was acquitted of those charges, but she was for a while a fugitive from the law. She was on the run because the FBI wanted to get her and lock her up. Lock her up, they did. She spent time in jail before her trial and during her trial. But again, she was acquitted of all charges. And then went on to have a fantastic academic career in women's studies and in philosophy. That's who she was. That's a lot to be, isn't it? What a remarkable person in life. Am I right to say that there's been a resurgence of interest in her, particularly around defunding the police and penality, or, or does she always have particular moments of relevance, do you think? Well, I, I share your perception that Angela Davis has become popular again. I know she's been giving a lot of high-profile speeches and lectures. Her, her work on the prison system is so relevant to today. I mean, mass incarceration of Black and Brown is a horrible problem in the United States, way overrepresented among the criminally confined population. And she began speaking out about prison abolition and prison reform many, many decades ago. Uh, she's also famous for work on gender issues. But I do think that right now, her main prominence does have to do with the questions of the, the police treatment of men of color and of the mass incorporation of men of color. I think even more reason to read her again, if, if you already have. Should we hear a little from your chapter on Angela Davis, please, Anita? I wanted to hear the last paragraph of my chapter because it's the one in which I talk about my own personal connection to Angela Davis. We have in common that we both come from Southern families. Her family came from Alabama. My family came from Georgia, from the city of Atlanta. But we couldn't have been more different in terms of our upbringing. I was raised as a conservative, Christian, military, proper little Negro girl. And she was raised to be a radical from day one by her radical parents. But nonetheless, there's a connection. And I want to just talk about my first meeting with her and about how my daughter also had a chance to meet her. Okay, so here's how the passage goes. The number of women of African ancestry who are professional academic philosophers remains small in the United States. Angela Davis was one of the first such women to receive a PhD in philosophy. Joyce Mitchell Cook and Naomi Zak, Zak identifies as mixed race, also received PhDs in the 1960s. A handful more received PhDs in the 1970s and 1980s. Davis was the only black woman philosopher I had ever heard of when I read Marcuse, Sartre, and Marx in college and began a PhD program in philosophy in 1974. In November 2017, soon after I commenced duties as president-elect of the American Philosophical Association Eastern Division, I had the good fortune to meet Angela Davis in person. I met her at the Collegium of Black Women Philosophers' 10th annual meeting at which she was honored. I was not sure what to expect from my first meeting with a person whose beauty, commitment to justice, and intelligence have uniquely inspired me since I was 16. 
I found her warm and gracious. She was generous from the podium in publicly acknowledging my far more modest accomplishments. As I watched her address a room full of admirers that included my own college-age daughter, it was clear that I am not the only one for whom Angela Davis is and always be a philosopher queen. I love that your daughter was inspired by this. That seems you know, not an insignificant part of our discussion about how to generate interest and to inspire younger people. On that note, I need to ask you, Anita, what is it like to be yourself crowned a philosopher queen in this book? It's delicious. <laughs> delicious, but also a little bit embarrassing. But I thought that the author, um, Ilhan Dahir, did a fantastic job. You know, you, you read something about yourself and you sometimes feel a little uneasy. You feel as if the person didn't quite get you right. But I really felt as if she captured some important aspects of my career. I think that some of the reasons why I belong <laughs> among the queens, as I mentioned, um, you know, I was one of the first Black women to get a PhD in philosophy. I think that Angela Davis was probably the second. I think that Adrian Piper and I were the fourth and fifth same year to get our PhDs in philosophy. I'm the first Black woman to ever get a law degree. I have a law degree from Harvard and a PhD in philosophy. So I have that sort of double credential, which uh, elevates me to queendom. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the, the APA presidency. Uh, recently, I've been inducted into some learned societies that are high prestige in the U.S. So having had a very successful academic career, very good training in philosophy and law, excelled in, in my profession. I've written many books and many articles. I think that's why I got picked. But I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, as Rebecca said, there are many, many, many women who would have been perfectly well suited to be included in this volume. And I'm very pleased to have been one of three Black women who were included, two African-American women and one African woman. So thank you, Rebecca, for including me. Oh, that's very generous of you to say that. But I, I, although can I acknowledge that I think I think it's ex entirely right to own your queendom. We, we started our conversation by talking about that feeling of having to prove evidence of our worthiness, to prove why we're in a room. But I think we are reaching a point where we can own our, our queendom. <laughs> we can claim our thrones. And I think that's really important to hear you do that, Anita. Can I ask you to talk a little bit about your work? I'm learning about your work and I'm finding it so fascinating. I think we need to run an event on Anita L. Allen. There's a section in Ilhan Dahir's essay where she talks about the compartmentalization, keeping some facets of ourselves from the public or reserving some persona for the world is a necessary part of daily life. And your, your work is about the new ethical dilemmas of the digital age, it seems to me, privacy and public life in the digital sphere. Tell me about how this work came about and, and, and what you're doing. Yeah, so another um, basis for my being a queen, <laughs> first, first American to write a full-length philosophical book about privacy. But yeah, so in 1988, I wrote a book called Uneasy Access, Privacy for Women in a Free Society. That was before the internet and social media. Well, once internet and social media caught on, I began to write about privacy in relationship to the digital age, privacy online for women, for example, but just in general about digital ethics. So this is where I am right now, spending a lot of time on digital ethics. The um, tragic events of last summer in the United States when George Floyd was murdered in broad daylight by a police officer and a Black woman named Breonna Taylor was murdered in her own bed by police caused me to think about privacy uh, more in relationship to race. So I'm currently working on a piece for the Yale Law Journal on how privacy issues look through the lens of race and how we can think about governing platforms like Facebook and Google and, and Amazon, how we can can govern these platforms in a way which is responsive to the demands of racial justice and equity. That sounds so important and so fascinating. Thank you for telling us about that work and for doing that work. Let me ask Rebecca and Desiree if they wanted to come in, if they had any remarks. I mean, Rebecca, it's quite nice, isn't it, hearing from one of your philosopher queens? Yeah, it's amazing. We've done a few events with Anita throughout the sort of course of the book, and she's always been a really amazing spokesperson for the book, and it's, it's great to have a proper queen among our midst. So I, to my discredit, hadn't heard of Anita until Ilhan said, oh, I'd love to write my chapter on Professor Anita L. Allen. And so I went away and researched her and sort of immediate, yes, that sounds like a fabulous chapter. And I'm so pleased that that it's been included. I wonder what you think of Emmy's portrait of you, <laughs> So the photograph that was the basis of my portrait was the picture of me wearing braids, long braids. I love the picture. 
What she doesn't know is that that particular hairstyle and the suit I was wearing, I chose for a portrait that was done as my official law school photograph after I've gone through breast cancer. And so I wanted to be beautiful. I wanted so hard to look well and to look recovered. So the photograph was a very special photograph for me and the drawing based on the photograph, therefore, carries with it that sense of resilience, personal resilience and, and strength that I wanted, I want to convey and that I was able to convey then. I just remembered the name of the organization that I was having trouble remembering. It's the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is full of queens. Uh, the year I was inducted, I think it was two years ago, uh, Michelle Obama was also inducted. And then Oprah Winfrey is inducted. So those are two very clear Black queens. And so there you go. <laughs> They're uber queens, aren't they? That's, that's brilliant. Desiree, did you want to come in? Yeah, I'll just say very quickly that, Anita, it's such a great honor to meet you by Zoom. I wish this were in person. And I'm just really excited for um, your future research, which seems to me to be the path forward, right? I, I think many of us are very disturbed by big data and how it's going to impact our lives and how it is already impacting our lives. And I think we can pretty much guarantee that with any new phenomena, it's always going to have some kind of disparate impact on the people who are marginalized and oppressed. And I think it's fantastic that your work is going to be drawing on that theme. And you know, kudos to the European Union because the European Union Data Protection Authority invited me a couple of years ago to speak in Brussels about digital ethics. And I said, well, do you want me to talk about privacy? They said, I want you to talk about ethics. And so I spoke about ethics to this amazing crowd of international uh, data protection experts. And I just have found in the last couple of years that there's a tremendous interest in hearing from me as a philosopher, which is what the Brussels group wanted to hear. And also hearing from me as a Black woman philosopher. I think I've exhausted myself with 32 <laughs> keynote addresses this year because there's such an interest in hearing about privacy through the lens of race. And I do believe that while I didn't spend nearly enough time during the bulk of my 40-year career writing about racial issues in connection to my passion for privacy, that I'm now quite awake to these concerns and I'm now writing actively in this area. Uh, I did take a pause from academia for seven years to serve as vice provost for faculty of my university, sort of like being the dean of faculty of the university. Uh, and that was a wonderful experience. But now that I'm back as a full-time teacher and scholar, I'm looking forward to the next set of papers, which will have to do with primarily with privacy through the lens of race. But also I'm interested in public philosophy, in philosophy of language as it relates to the discourse of privacy. I'm also interested in topics around what you mentioned in your introduction, actually, around mental health. And I have an interest in writing a book about the ethics of mental health. Let me let me pick up one of your, your, your remarks there about philosophy, the philosophy of African-American women, but also non-Western philosophy. I think, Rebecca, one of the merits of this book is its effort at representing a genuinely global range of thinkers, not only people of colour, but non-Western philosophy. Was that hard to find? How did you go about doing that? It wasn't hard to find. I think there's a sense in, or at least when I was studying undergraduate philosophy and we were complaining about our syllabus and how not at all diverse it was, that a lot of our tutors sort of said, oh, well, there just isn't very much good stuff out there. But there's loads of great stuff out there we found very quickly. What we tended to do for those chapters where we were being a bit more purposeful in asking, could you please write about this person that you specialise in? So the Banjiao chapter, we found a specialist on Banjiao and particularly asked her. Um, one of our great chapters is by Mina Salami, and she wrote a chapter on Sophia Lawoli, who sadly died a few years ago, but was an amazing philosopher who sort of brought the African oral tradition to and translated it for a, a Western audience. And her work is fantastic and sort of carries on that Socratic tradition, but in an African context. So she should be on every uh, undergraduate philosophy syllabus, but unfortunately she isn't. So no, it, it wasn't as hard to find as everybody made out. I'm, I was on the job market this year as well, and it's really great to see how many positions there are that want people to engage in specifically non-Western philosophy. And I think that's a real shift from when I was an undergraduate eight or nine years ago. So... I think, as Desiree was saying earlier, um, it's really heartening to see. And I'm looking forward to seeing where we're at in 10 years. 
I think that's exactly the response I was hoping you would give. I think that there is this assumption that this non-Western philosophy is somehow hard to find. But I think one of the premises of your book is to suggest that women are not absent from the history of philosophy and women of colour are not absent from the history of philosophy, only absent from the collections and the compendiums that we're accustomed to using and we, we have to go elsewhere to find them. And I, one of my, my questions, perhaps for all of you, is, is from an observation that many of the philosophers in this book are often in other disciplines, as are you in, in law departments or in political science departments. I was thinking about Hannah Arendt, who you wrote about, Rebecca Buxton, who didn't always identify as a philosopher, or Iris Murdoch, who is also, was also a novelist as well as a philosopher. And is there a reason why women philosophers are often in other disciplines or doing philosophy in other disciplines? And why is that? Yeah, I think philosophy can often be a hostile place for, for women, as we've seen. And so a lot of women in the book did their philosophy outside of the kinds of typical ivory tower academic institutions that a lot of philosophy is done in today. But I think philosophy is a it's a special discipline in that lots of philosophy does happen outside of universities. I mean, if we look at particularly thinking about Iris Marion Young and the kind of work that she does, social activists and writers and poets and all different kinds of people do philosophy all the time. So it's a much richer discipline once we start to consider people outside. And we manage to capture all these people who've been excluded from those institutions as well. So yeah, we tried specifically to take as broad a definition of philosopher as we possibly could. And of course, it just means the lover of wisdom. So the kind of rigidity with which we define philosophy is a product of universities and yeah. often those in power in these kinds of institutions want to keep out for whatever reason. So I think extending it is really important. So I, I mostly agree with what you just said, uh, Rebecca. One of my big concerns is that it's easier for people to define philosophy broadly when it comes to women. So there'll be a few women in history who were thinkers, you know, who had thoughts, and those are the ones that get included despite having no formal training or education in philosophy. I think it's very important that we give academically trained women in philosophy the props they deserve and not set them aside for someone like Harriet Mill or Mary Wollstonecraft, you know. And I find that it's interesting in the United States how if you ask someone in the academy, name a woman philosopher, name a Black woman philosopher, they're probably going to name a poet or a political scientist or a literature professor. They're seldom going to name a trained person in philosophy. We've got to change that. And, and part of it is philosophy's own fault. And that's because I believe that some of us, we define ourselves so narrowly. We marginalize ourselves to such an extent that we don't have the broader conversation with other disciplines and with other scholars that we need in order to be uh, well-known and to be credited for the particularly, specifically philosophical training that we bring to whatever it is we're talking about. You know, for me, I added law onto my philosophy because I found that I felt after philosophy graduate school, four years of philosophy graduate school, I didn't know anything. And that's literally how I felt. I, I don't know how the world works. And so in law school, I was able to learn, well, this is how corporations work. This is how insurance companies work, how banks work, how the government works, how international law works. And I felt much more connected to the world and able to bring my philosophical interests into a more concrete and productive and useful context by having become both a philosopher and a lawyer. And so there's no shame or nothing wrong with adding that extra degree, having that interdisciplinarity. But I do want to insist that we not overlook women who have PhDs in philosophy in the name of honoring those thinkers, women thinkers, more broadly speaking, who've also made contributions to society. Yeah, I agree with that totally. And I think there was a tendency, at least in my philosophy degree, to sort of have conversations about learned ladies. So like very privileged European royalty who essentially wrote one letter to a philosopher once and have now been included as, as like the women philosopher that you talk about in the course. And I always found that really frustrating. But it's so interesting what you say about interdisciplinarity, because I did exactly the same. So I had a philosophy undergraduate I felt at the end of it, well, that was broadly a waste of my time. And I went and did a master's degree in refugee and forced migration studies. And now I'm in an interdisciplinary department doing my PhD. 
And I think that's right, is there was a, a real desire to be able to apply that to some kind of concrete reality. And often philosophy on its own doesn't necessarily give you the tools. Yeah. Um, you sort of have to supplement it with other things. I certainly remember, Desiree, you may have had a similar genealogy to me where I started in an English department and English allowed me into literary theory and continental philosophy, but not quite into what might be regarded as philosophy proper. And in fact, I remember being rebuked slightly for calling myself a philosopher or that what I did being philosophy. And I can't help but think that had something to do with my gender and my age and perhaps even my race. But I wonder what your, your feelings are, Desiree, on this. Yeah, so I think there's a real tension there and I'll try to describe it. So on one hand, I think that there's been some really important um, papers on meta philosophy. So philosophy papers on philosophy. And I'm thinking particularly about work by Jenny Saul, I believe, on the climate of philosophy for women and how hostile it can be. And also the work of Christy Dotson, which I found to be incredibly meaningful. And she's got this amazing paper that's called How is this Paper Philosophy? And I believe, um, Anita, that she responds directly to you in that paper. And since that paper, Christy's just written so much stuff about just contemplating philosophy as a profession and how we can make it more inclusive and make things legible as philosophy, even though they may not have been in the past because of just, I guess, a very narrow, very gatekeeper-y kind of attitude towards what philosophy is. But at the same time, I think that there's also lots of room to think of literature and um, other disciplines as being philosophical or at least complementary to philosophy. And I think um, the chapter on Iris Murdoch was really important in the book because Iris is just an amazing author and she brought out all these textures in her book by just writing stories about people. And the same for Simone de Beauvoir. There was a very recent short story written in published story in the New Yorker called Cat Person, if that rings any bells. I'm just trying to find the name of the author. I've totally forgotten um, her name. But I taught that in my um, feminist philosophy course on consent. And so I felt that even though we could have gone to all the really old school stuff about consent and adopted this very legal perspective, just reading the story about a young woman having a very hard time negotiating what consent was for her was really just a trick to get the students thinking about the topic philosophically. That's a great recommendation. Kristen Rupenian, I just Googled That's it. right, the, exactly. The story was amazing. And I think it's part of a collection now, which has been published too. Uh, we must turn to the audience. Question from Leah Bacchus. Leah is asking for advice. First of all, she says this is incredibly inspiring. What advice would you give young women thinking about doing graduate studies in philosophy and getting into the academic field? Any advice? I'm um, a little notorious for asking the question, well, why does philosophy deserve you, right? <laughs> yes, good question. So many things you could do with your life, right? But if you love philosophy, if it's really a passion, then I think it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile discipline. One thing that women who don't have a lot of money should keep in mind is that many PhD programs are tuition free. Um, you sort of earn your keep by being a teaching assistant. And so you don't have to go into huge amounts of debt in order to become a philosopher. But I think you need to go into the field with um, specific mentors in mind. I would not blindly apply to a philosophy department not knowing with whom I'm going to work because mentorship is so, so important. I have right now five philosophy doctoral mentees. Four are men and one is a woman. Um, one is an African from Uganda and one is an Israeli uh, living in Tel Aviv. But I love having a sort of an array of graduate students. And, but you must, as a student, have a mentor. It's almost impossible to succeed without someone to provide guidance. And you don't want to be mimic your mentor, but you do need someone who's going to sponsor you and mentor you and help you and guide you through what could be four or five or six very treacherous um, time frames. Also, don't assume you know going into it exactly what you want to write on, however. So have mentors in mind, but don't feel as if you know from day one what you want your dissertation topic to be. Be open to learning new things and exploring new things and don't feel compartmentalized. Don't feel as if you have to write about gender or race if you are a woman of color. But, but if you do want to write about gender or race, lucky you because you can. Whereas when I was a student 40 years ago, I couldn't. I wish I had heard from Anita <laughs> 10 years ago. That would have been very helpful. But I want to echo what she says about mentorship. I think that that might be the most important thing to keep in mind when applying to a philosophy program. Who is it you want to work with? And make sure that it's someone who will invest in you. I think that's more important than the brand name of the university that you go to, to be honest, because what really matters, I think, when you're applying for jobs in the future is your recommendation letters. And you want people who will really put in the effort to talk about you as a person and not just 
just give you a generic, oh, that person's kind of okay sort of letter. So that's one thing. And the other thing I will say is to the young women out there, do not be scared off by the stories we've heard about harassment and assault in philosophy. It has happened. It is awful. We should not tolerate this at any cost. But I can also say that as a woman in philosophy who's been around for a while, I have also had incredible male mentors. Pretty much all the men I worked with personally, individually, were respectful, encouraging, and treated me exactly the way I needed to be treated as an equal. We had amazing conversations, and they have been very inspiring to me too. So don't be afraid. Have the vocabulary to understand what's happening to you if something like that does happen, but don't let that scare you off philosophy. Great advice. Um, but I'm just at the end of my PhD. And, and like I said, it, it's in a different department. So I'm not in a philosophy department. But just to echo what Desiree said, as much as I complain about it in the introduction of this book, I did love doing philosophy. And if you love it, then you should do it. And it is difficult and the job market's rubbish and it's very stressful uh, along the way. But now there are many women and people of colour and this amazing diverse community coming through the bottom of philosophy and working its way up into the higher positions and making it a much more hospitable and welcoming place for everyone. So I would say the same. Please do go for it if you want to. If I, if I may add, I, since I feel a little bit qualified to, mm-hmm. to talk on this too, I would say do what Rebecca did. If the if the environment isn't right, if the books aren't there, then invent them, you know, create the reading groups, create the communities. Sometimes you end up at a well-regarded university and you feel obliged to be there, but the space isn't right, in which case you find your people and you find your thinkers. And I, I would say go for mentorship rather than discipleship. I found philosophy departments often had apostles, male apostles, that we were all required to worship. And that culture of discipleship does not help philosophy. And you can make your own decisions about who you want to care for you, who you want to model yourself against. You don't have to follow the crowd. And I've often found that my female colleagues did that often and helped me to do that too. But that's a great question. And I I think you've all answered it really beautifully. Perhaps we've answered this, but I'll ask it anyway, just in case you have a different take on it. Catherine has asked, could you please speak of women philosophers who may not have occupied traditional academic roles? Actually, I was thinking of Lala in your book, Rebecca, the essay by Shalini Sinha about the Indian yogic philosopher. Very early, I think, and I'd never heard of her, but I suppose we would say she's not a traditional philosopher or in an academic philosophical discipline, but that seemed important to you to find a space for people like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And, and there are a few other women in the book that you know weren't in traditional departments. It depends what you mean by traditional philosophy department, right? So obviously she wasn't at Oxford, but she was doing philosophy in this kind of rich and engaged way that we would expect. And George Eliot is in the book as well, another novelist who wrote very rich philosophical novels as somebody who might be brought out as one of those characters as well. At the back of the book, there's a section on more philosopher queens, which includes a list of lots of women in philosophy departments working today or from before, and other women that um, are kind of thought of as public philosophers who maybe haven't had the same institutional background. So I'd encourage you to go and have a leaf through the back of the book. Yeah, there's a great reading list at the back of the book. Anita, you are going to come in. I've now mentioned several times Joyce Mitchell Cook, the first Black woman to get her PhD in philosophy in the U.S. She actually was denied tenure in philosophy, and so she moved outside the academy. She had a very interesting career. She worked for President Jimmy Carter as a speechwriter and correspondence analyst. Uh, She also had taken breaks from philosophy from time to time to work at the U.S. State Department. So she had an amazing career in federal government service, to which she brought the analytic rigor that she learned at Oxford (laughs) to her work. Very conscious about how to be clear about concepts, be clear about language, to be uh, organized in one's thinking, to be insightful. These are sort of some of the messages one gets about philosophy, clarity and logic. And she brought that to her work, whether she was writing a philosophical paper about informed consent or a, a brief for, for the president on an upcoming speech. What a great reference. We need to go and look her up now. We, we've totally run out of time. and We've got about a minute left. So I want to just hear from you very quickly about what your hopes are for the discipline what what do you want the discipline to look like in 20 years time Desiree you go first my somewhat humorous response to this question is I want us to be in a world where 
there are no professors who are basically <laughs> pretending to be of a different race than they are. It's a thing that's happening. It's horrifying to me. And I want that to just end completely by that point. Agree. Anita? Three words, leadership for women, authenticity. And I think Desiree, your point gets to that, authenticity and relevance. I could see a, a world in which philosophy was way more full of women leaders uh, who were terribly authentic in, their, in the persona they bring to their work and who were doing very relevant and helpful work. And Rebecca. Yeah, those are great thoughts. What I've learned from teaching this year is I'm sort of constantly inspired by my philosophy students. And so I'm actually already quite hopeful that in 20 years, if they go on to be philosophers, that we'll be in a pretty good place already. Thank you so much to Rebecca Buxton, Anita Allen and Desiree Lim. You can hear more from the forum by looking for details on our webpage where you can subscribe to our podcast and you can rifle through our archive. Do join us again. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. (laughs) 